You've discovered TalkZone.com. I thank you. America has spoken from the bottom of my heart. The best in Internet talk radio. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the power vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of health care each and every day. That's the fact, Jack! Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, some call it discriminatory. Others say it's best for both the mother and the baby. The British Fertility Society has said assisted in vitro fertilization uh, should only be administered to those women who are not obese. Well, it can plague either gender, but there's something just in particular about women stuffing their emotions in their gut. After all, it is the second nervous system that gives us the opportunity today, after all, it's our weekly focus on women's health, to focus on irritable bowel syndrome in women. We'll talk about all the factors that set the stage, what are some ancillary factors as well, and more importantly, what are your treatment options? We'll talk about women and their irritable bowels right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. Well, the first was Arnica Gel. Uh, we're talking about herbal supplements to be approved by the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency under the new European Directive on Traditional Chinese, uh, Traditional Medicine Products. Now just keep in mind, uh, for example, in Germany, uh, they have a huge German Commission E monograph. In fact, when it was translated into English, it was the top-selling medical book here in this country a couple of years ago. Um, and in Germany, as well as France and England, other European countries, often herbal medicine, phytomedicines, are part of the medical approach. In fact, in Germany, um, they often prescribe herbs before pharmaceuticals. And if the patient wants a pharmaceutical drug that's available to them but out of their pocket, uh, uh, Arnica Gel was the first product to uh, meet the assured standards of quality, safety, and patient information on the basis of the European Directive on uh, Traditional Herbal Medicine Products. The second, just announced yesterday, saw palmetto capsules. And uh, if you're interested in reading the German Commission e-monograph, um, the American Herbal uh, Products Association um, Let's see, uh, herbs.org, uh, their herb research foundation. There are many groups uh, that make available to you these just wonderful treatises all about science-based herbal medicine care. Well, we've invited him. He'll be returning uh, to us uh, yet again. He's Dr. Walter Willett uh, from Harvard School of Public Health a medical doctor who is also head of the Department of Nutrition. His first book was Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. He's now collaborating on a new book all about a fertility diet. Apparently he and his colleague there, Dr. Chavaro, 
have found that a higher intake of monounsaturated fats, we're talking about those fats that we find in sources like olive oil, vegetable protein, so in other words, rather than focus on animal protein, switching to vegetable protein, uh, and those proteins are rich in particularly beans and uh, uh, legumes like soy uh, and nuts, uh, high fiber, low glycemic carbohydrates. So we're talking about the whole grains and the fresh fruits and vegetables, quote, improved fertility outcomes in women who had ovulatory disorder infertility. In fact, the most common reason women do not conceive these days is polycystic ovarian syndrome, often linked to insulin resistance. So, Dr. Willett and Dr. Trevaro from Harvard University put it to the test, and they found that following a fertility diet, in other words, we're, we're talking about a plant-based diet rich in whole foods, they were able to improve fertility better than 80%. <laughs> There's no drugs that do it to the tune of 80% efficacy, and we'll have Dr. Willett join us to talk about his new book, focusing on the fertility diet that what you eat makes a difference in every body function, including your reproductive ability. Well, it's a study of phenolic acids, the are naturally occurring plant compounds, and flavonoids to study their effect on fat cells. Now, just keep in mind, Fat cells are more than just repositories where fat is stored in our body. They're actually recognized to be little hormone factors, in fact, organs in and of themselves these days, um, and recognized to produce inflammatory chemicals, one of the main reasons why obesity has almost 100% correlation with increased risk of, uh, of inflammation. This new study, published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry, looked at the effect of flavonoids and phenolic acids on not only the little triglycerides, uh, but also glycerol-3-phosphate dehydrogenase enzyme. That's an enzyme that forms triglycerides in fat cells. Their conclusion was that natural antioxidant compounds like flavonoids and phenolic acids may stop the formation of fat cells. So whether or not that translates into something that can be used therapeutically remains to be seen, but certainly a plant-rich diet where you get lots of these naturally occurring plant chemicals, including the flavonoids and the phenolic acids that were part of this study, indicate that a a whole grain plant-based diet does make a difference. In fact, uh, the nurses study out of Harvard took a look um, at type 2 diabetics who were able to reverse the disease better than 90% of the time by moving to a more plant-based diet. If they ate grains, only whole grains, uh, supplementing wisely, exercise each and every day, getting rid of all the bad fats, getting some good fats each and every day, able to reverse diabetes better than 90% of the time. Well, it is a quotation by Dr. Bonikdar, who is the Director of Pain Management at Scripps Center for Integrative Medicine in La Jolla. 
He calls coenzyme Q10, which is a vitamin-like antioxidant that we find in muscle cells, the quarterback of mitochondria, that levels of coenzyme Q10, yes, you can get a blood test, determine whether energy is being made efficiently or sluggishly. And with a lot more coenzyme Q10 deficiency out there these days, thanks to the use of statin drugs, yes, statin drugs affect the body's ability to produce coenzyme Q10. In fact, a study this year finding that combining uh, coenzyme Q10 with statins cut the pain, the muscle aches that are often associated with taking statin drugs by 40% in one year has, quote, spurred new interest in coenzyme Q10 supplementation. Of course, if we're talking about what we need to do to really rev up our mitochondria, which are our cells' powerhouses, there are other nutrients in addition to coenzyme Q10 that make a difference as well. In addition to coenzyme Q10, nutrients like D-ribose, L-carnitine, but according to the Director of Pain Management at Scripps Center for Integrative Medicine, Dr. Bob Bonikdar, coenzyme Q10 is the quarterback of the mitochondria, that your blood levels of coenzyme Q10 determine whether energy is being made efficiently or sluggishly. And, of course, uh, the use of coenzyme Q10, along with magnesium, fish oil, carnitine, and D-ribose, at the center of an integrative approach to the, to the care of the failing heart, uh, now being looked at, uh, scrutinized in double-blind placebo-controlled studies because there have been case histories indicating that patients taken off heart transplant list when they follow this protocol. And it is all published in the Sinatra Solution, written by cardiologist Dr. Stephen Sinatra, to focus on what lifestyle changes. You know, you just can't just take the pills because diet, supplementation, exercise, all those factors do make a difference. Well, it's a study that was presented at the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology's annual scientific medicine meeting in Dallas, and it doesn't bode well for the upcoming Christmas holiday. We'll tell you more at the bottom of the hour. We'll turn our focus to women's health. We do it each and every week during this time. We'll talk about women and their irritable bowels. We invite you to join us. It's toll-free no matter where you're listening to us, one 800 right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now, the woman who is single-handedly changing the face of health care. Hey, can we get a little help here, please? She shouldn't have to do this alone. Here's Deborah Ray. Our focus today, uh, women's health, we'll take that topic up at the bottom of the hour, focusing on women and their irritable bowels. But we promised to uh, come back and tell you more about a study presented at the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology's annual scientific meeting that was held in uh, Dallas, examining the relationship between mold growth on live Christmas trees. Oh, I sound like Grinch. I love live Christmas trees. And poor indoor air quality. This study grew out of a consistent and dramatic increase in 
my sinuses are driving me crazy, or my asthma is worse than ever than it's ever been before among patients every single winter, according to allergist uh, Dr. John Santilli, who led this study. And uh, he um, uh, did some thinking about it, and as mold growth is common in the area uh, surrounding outdoor foliage, he began to think about the presence of a live Christmas tree contributing to indoor mold. And, of course, we link indoor mold to poor respiratory function. We link indoor mold to uh, worsening depression. And what these researchers did is that 12 times during a two-week period, they measured mold counts in a room containing a live Christmas tree, beginning when the tree was brought inside and decorated. That tree was located 10 feet from a heat vent, and the indoor temperature was maintained at between 65 and 68 degrees. So we're not talking about a hot, humid environment where we would say, oh, my goodness, so, yeah, you're going to have some mold growth. And what they found is that... Um, during the first three days, the mold spore counts remained uh, you know, fairly modest, 800 spores per cubic meter of air, and then started to rise dramatically. And by day 14, when that Christmas tree was taken down, down uh, there was a maximum of 5,000 uh, mold spores per cubic meter of air. The take-home message um, is that if you have allergies and asthma in your family, may want to think twice about Christmas trees, knowing that they uh, sometimes bring allergic symptoms as well as a potential source of indoor mold to those who are susceptible. Uh, makes you wonder if there are ways and maybe some of the essential oils that are known to be antifungal like tea tree oil or eucalyptus oil um, or others that could possibly be added to the water used to nourish um, indoor Christmas trees, uh, live Christmas trees, to see if uh, that might impact that mold count, keeping it down. Well, it's the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine looking at the effects of stress and how stress can affect traditional dermatologic issues. We're talking about hair, skin, and nails. And when it comes to your skin, stress raises the level of your body's stress hormone cortisol. That makes your body produce more oil. So that stress which raises cortisol, which causes an increased production of oil, can lead to oily skin, to acne and other skin problems. Uh, additionally, um, a physician there at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine indicated that your hair can show the effects of stress. In fact, stress may be the, rain, uh, the main reason for unexplained hair loss, that after a stressful event or a life-changing event like childbirth or surgery, you often typically find hair loss, although it should be back to normal in about nine months. That's a long time. (laughs) And uh, additionally, of course, stress can exacerbate that nervous habit of biting or picking at your nails, which is often related to brittle 
peeling nails. So according to this physician, Dr. Mayoral at the Miami's Miller School of Medicine, it's important to not only curb the effects of stress internally and externally, that whether it's exercise to help reduce stress, uh, avoiding very hot showers and baths, using detergent-free soaps, moisturizing right after a bath, knowing that stress can take its toll on your hair, your skin, and your nails. And, of course, most of us already knew that. In fact, with that uh, burgeoning field of psychoneurodermatology, oh, yes, you get upset, your skin gets upset, too, as well. Well, it's research uh, out just this week, published in the Archives of Internal Medicine, taking a look at now what is a common condition, fibromyalgia. It's believed that up to 10 million Americans have some degree of chronic fatigue syndrome, which often goes hand-in-hand with fibromyalgia. And this study took a look at women aged 18 to 75 who had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. They were assigned to either a twice-a-week aerobic and stretching program, another group had a mild strength program, and a third group had uh, an education uh, course, just, you know, just topical theory type of information, and a fourth combined all of the approaches. And what they found is that an appropriately structured exercise program that involves progressive walking, flexibility, as well as strength training improved people with fibromyalgia's physical function, their emotional function, and their social function, that the beneficial uh, um, effect on physical function of exercise alone and in combination with exercise persisted for another six months after it was terminated. And I'm reminded of the study that appeared in October of um, 2003 at Thomas Jefferson University where they took a group of fibromyalgia patients and said, what would you change in your diet? What would you be willing to change to end your suffering from fibromyalgia? And this particular group said, I'd be willing to change my diet dramatically. So what they did was take these um, uh, patients suffering from fibromyalgia and for 30 days change their diet dramatically. They got away from all the most common allergenic foods that include dairy and corn, wheat and soy, moved to a much less allergenic diet. And after three weeks, 83% of them said, my pain has gone away. That for many of us, even good food can be a, uh, an offending, a triggering allergen. And those immune complexes of that uh, offending allergen, plus our body's response in the form of antibodies, can go to joints causing pain and inflammation and stiffness. Good news uh, with the revelation that exercise makes a difference when it comes to fibromyalgia. And uh, now two studies indicating that if you feed your body the nutrient that it needs to uh, help your muscles relax, deribose, that what we find is that patients uh, just simply doing nothing else, but after two weeks... Uh, having a better than 65% improvement 
in their overall fibromyalgia, uh, pain and stiffness, just with the use of D-ribose, magnesium, and malic acid. The product that was used in this uh, now published clinical study is Corvalin M that we know if we run a marathon, our stride is not nearly as long at the end as it is in the beginning because we start to deplete our body supply of that important energy substrate for our mitochondria, D-ribose. And when we supplement with D-ribose, uh, we can help that muscle have the fuel that it needs to relax to alleviate the pain of fibromyalgia. We're going to return. It's our Women's Health Focus on Women and Their Irritable Bowel. The telephone number to join us, 1-800-307-3002. Your questions about irritable bowel syndrome, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Warning. Healthy Talk Radio presents revolutionary information that could cause facial tics and foaming at the mouth, but it's backed up by documented research and presented by credentialed guests. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors. But hey, it's not like they went to medical school. The Women's Health Hour is brought to you by Age Best Basics. Be your best at any age. Our Women's Health Focus today, focusing on women and their irritable bowel. Why irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel syndrome, or some of the often accompanying conditions of diverticulosis, diverticulitis, uh, colitis, um, um, ischemic colitis, um, Crohn's, Crohn's colitis, uh, lots of labels there, often go hand in hand and certainly can affect either gender or any age, the, the, the fact remains that in sheer numbers, there are more women who suffer from their irritable bowel than do men. In fact, uh, there are some statistics that are just <laughs> amazing, indicating um, that uh, a large percentage of the population, anywhere from uh, 10 to 20 percent, suffer from irritable bowel syndrome at any one point in time. Now, not to get stuck on semantics, because while we'll find irritable bowel syndrome in the diagnostic manual of diagnostic codes, in other words, it has an ICD-9 code that your physician's office can use on an insurance form, so it's a bona fide diagnosis. In truth, irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel syndrome are truly not diseases, not a condition, not a pathology, but rather a collection of signs and symptoms that really don't fit any other disease process. doesn't make it any less real, but that label of irritable bowel syndrome, that accompanying ICD-9 code is very useful just for the classification of medicine because we tend to like to classify things, to label conditions, uh, to be able to quantify and bill for them, because you know that that's the structure of conventional medicine in this country. So if you present yourself to your doctor's office with, oh, you know, abdominal pain, 
cramping, abdominal distension, alternating periods of constipation or a diarrhea. Sometimes you report fecal or mucus incontinence, nausea, fatigue, low back pain, nonspecific gastrointestinal or extraintestinal problems. Your doctor may suspect in fact, may run some tests to rule out irritable bowel syndrome. What are those tests? Those uh, might often include, depending upon what the symptoms are and where that pain is located, he might do both upper and lower GI analysis. So you may have, and I know that it's not even fun to even talk about, um, sigmoidoscopies, colonoscopies, endoscopies, um, barium enemas, um, upper and lower GI series. So any number of tests to look at your gastrointestinal system from a structural standpoint. I make that point because there is a huge difference between looking at your gastrointestinal system structurally when you are suspected of having irritable bowel syndrome versus functional. In other words, if they do a bare minima and say, oh, you've got a lot of pouches, a lot of diverticuli, must run in your family. You think for a moment and say, and? <laughs> because it probably doesn't run in your family. At least that's what I uh, was told when I presented with those signs and symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome and had, uh, well, gee, I counted at one point in time, I think 12 barium enemas over the course of a many-year period. And that was it. Sigmoidoscopies, colonoscopies, endoscopies, upper and, and lower GI series. Again, I was told my bowel was spastic, we're talking about the two forms, uh, primary forms of, of irritable bowel syndrome with, of course, a whole spectrum of shades in between, spastic colon versus mucus colitis, that I had inflamed bowel, so I had colitis. Um, I had bleeding, so I had... Um, uh, uh, the inflammatory form of, of uh, colitis that's often accompanied by, be- by uh, bleeding um, had the, the abdominal cramps and all the other signs and symptoms uh, that are reminiscent of irritable bowel syndrome. So I had that uh, added to my list of ICD-9 codes because the very minima showed diverticuli. And obviously I was presenting with signs and symptoms of diverticulitis. They added that to the uh, laundry list of of ICD-9 codes that were part of my medical chart. So I knew structurally what was going on. My bowel was inflamed. It was often very spastic. Um, Sometimes those spasms affected the diverticula, the pouches that I developed in my colon which uh, might present with a little fever, little, uh, you know, escape of the material that was inside my gut into the peritoneal cavity or even into the bloodstream. So I knew what was happening structurally. What was overlooked at the time, and still to this day is often overlooked uh, by gastroenterology, although it's changing, is the function of the gut. Yeah, 
what's going on with the function of the gut. Because it's only when you recognize functional disorders, my own personal opinion is, as well as a group of, uh, a growing group of gastroenterologists who practice integrative care, as well as integrative medical doctors, that that integrative medical approach that focuses on not only structure first and foremost, but then function, and then finally a total body approach, that we really have a bona fide approach to why you have irritable bowel syndrome, then determining the treatment path that best meets your irritable bowel syndrome signs and symptoms pattern. So if we take a look at what affects gut function, there are many conditions uh, that do so. In fact, um, just last month, the gastroenterologists met, and for the first time, there was a large symposium focusing on probiotics. That's the term used to define good bacteria. There's lots of different species that are part of that, but primarily the big ones are the acidophilus and the bifidus, which are important in both the small and large intestine function. And uh, the vice president of the American Society of Gastroenterologists was reported as saying, we now recognize irritable bowel syndrome to be an imbalance of the bowel's flora. What does that mean? You are supposed to have 85% good bacteria. That means 85% of good strains that are under the classification of probiotics versus 15% bad. But irritable bowel syndrome, according to the American Society of Gastroenterologists Vice President, is an imbalance of the bowel's flora. So perhaps you don't have enough good bacteria or you even have an overgrowth of bad bacteria. There are many factors that affect that. Stress is one. Um, There are um, certain drugs like birth control pills. In fact, any hormonal therapy can affect the flora of your gut. Steroids. If you're taking uh, steroids to maybe uh, deal with asthma, uh, maybe deal with an inflammatory respiratory condition or other um, uh, ongoing autoimmune conditions, those steroids can often trigger irritable bowel syndrome. Antibiotics go without saying. So if you have a history of the use of antibiotics, and it may not only be by prescription, we now identify antibiotic residues in our water supply system, thanks to 50% of the antibiotics in this country being used in farming, how we grow our farm animals for food for our table the antibiotic residues from our water supply system, from a myriad of other sources. If we, uh, for example, as women have um, recurrent urinary tract infections, you may be prescribed antibiotics. And uh, there's, there's often that catch-21 cycle. I went through it. 
had irregular menstrual cycles, was given birth control pills to regulate those cycles, had signs and symptoms associated with the use of birth control pills. Um, It changed the balance of flora in my reproductive uh, tract, so I used um, uh, antibiotics um, all too frequently. In fact, I was prescribed tetracycline for two years, and it affected the function of my gut. Other nutrient balances and uh, imbalances, deficiencies, affect gut function as well. In fact, irritable bowel syndrome is often defined to be a motility disorder. So varying degrees of abdominal pain, spasm, constipation, diarrhea, and magnesium is a key nutrient that affects the large muscle function. So people uh, who are not getting sufficient magnesium in their diet often at high risk of irritable bowel syndrome. Now once you have that stage set for inflammation in your gut, subtle changes begin to take place. The lining of your gut has certain cilia, uh, very important for um, absorbing nutrient from the food as it passes through your digestive system, for making sure that those nutrients get into the bloodstream, that the waste products are shunted to the kidney and the liver, respectively, for excretion. But when you start to uh, have a pattern of use of antibiotics or stress or a bad diet, or birth control pills, or steroids, the lining of the gut is not as up to snuff as it used to be. In fact, you may hear the term leaky gut syndrome. There are other functional tests that can actually determine if you have a leaky gut and those food molecules that a normal gut wall would keep in the proper places, whether it's going to other parts of the digestive tract for digestion, whether nutrients are being uh, absorbed and released into the bloodstream, whether the molecules are being shunted to the kidneys or to the liver for excretion, all of a sudden start to leak through that gut lining and your body perceives those molecules as offending triggers and allergic reactions can ensue. In fact, Crohn's disease, often connected to those uh, that allergic inflammatory process, in fact, actually often termed an autoimmune condition, colitis can be related to that inflamed bowel with food molecules getting through the lining of the gut. And many autoimmune conditions have at their nidus that inflammation, that leaky gut that can be identified by functional testing. In fact, if you'd like to read more about functional testing, look at any good search engine. It's also written about in books like Digestive Wellness, written by a clinical nutritionist, Dr. Elizabeth Lipsky, or Optimum Digestive Health, 
written by gastroenterologist Dr. Trent Nichols, uh, as well as a host of other integrative physicians. And you'll read about CDSA, typing in comprehensive digestive stool analysis into a search engine, tells you more about how functional testing can tell you what's going on, where the functional problems lie that are that typify your irritable bowel syndrome. Then, nutrition, diet changes, and herbs make a difference. In fact, the herbs that are astringent to help reverse diarrhea, the bitters to promote the appropriate digestive secretions, the anti-inflammatories to reduce that local mucosal inflammation, the carminatives to help with any flatulence or colic, the antispasmodics if the cramping is severe. Uh, There is more, and we'll talk about herbs for irritable bowel syndrome. We're talking about women and their irritable bowels. Inviting you to join us at 800-307-3002, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Looking out for your health care concerns so you don't have to. Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray. Our focus each and every week uh, during this time on women's health, our topic today, women and their irritable bowel. We were talking about uh, assessing the bowel structurally versus uh, addressing uh, bowel function, particularly as it relates to irritable bowel syndrome. And then we promised to return to talk about potential treatment options. Here, diet does make a difference, as we've alluded to the fact that inflammation and leaky gut can set the stage where you may be reacting to good foods, working with a practitioner who can either work with you on an elimination diet basis or targeted testing. There are certainly great tests like uh, ELISA delayed food sensitivity testing for food allergens that can really help you through that conundrum of Oh, eat whatever you can tolerate. Oh, <laughs> but everything seems to trigger either those those spasms uh, or, uh, or or mucus colitis. So diet does make a difference. Nutrition is key. We've already alluded to the fact that magnesium is key uh, to help regulate the action of the smooth muscle of the gut. Other nutrients make a difference. You may have heard America's wellness doctor talk about powdered glutamine. Glutamine is this unique, in fact, it's the most common amino acid in the body, and it can help the digestive lining in so many ways. Uh, Reported in the medical literature to help uh, heal stomach ulcers, help the lining of the gut, uh, even in a fashion to help reverse leaky gut syndrome, the, the work of Harvard surgeon, Dr. Doug Wilmore, who actually reverses short bowel syndrome with the use of powdered glutamine. We talked about some of those uh, botanicals, the astringent, the bitter herbs, uh, the carminative, the nervine herbs, that you know, using uh, bitter herbs, uh, using carminative herbs like anise and garlic and ginger, astringents like uh, lotus and schizandra, uh, bitter herbs that often come in digestive bitter uh, mixtures, nerving herbs like hawthorn and poppy are often important keys 
to really working with the bowel from a standpoint of quelling inflammation. And, of course, we have to talk about some of the great studies indicating that even fish oil can be a great therapeutic benefit for people with colitis. So we leave you with the thought that irritable bowel syndrome is all about um, functional challenges. And there's so much in your lifestyle that you can do. Yeah, (laughs) total lifestyle, including exercise and how you handle those stresses, does make a difference for women and their irritable bowel. Our thanks to each and every one of you joining us today. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you, live long, stay healthy. The Women's Health Hour is brought to you by Age Best Basics. Increase your energy and boost your immune system with Age Best Basics.